0: Good morning, everyone. I don't know about you, uh, but I want to be a follower, and so I'm excited about this series and the next couple weeks that we're going to spend together looking at some of these passages in the book of Luke. Now, we have a word in our culture uh, to talk about when something is growing in popularity, and that is the word trending. Now, we're all familiar with this word, trending. Uh, We use it for things like fashion and style. Uh, Not necessarily with me, but uh, with some people, you know, that gets used. Uh, We talk about it when we talk about music or maybe a certain style of movie can be trending. Uh, And it's even a word that we use to talk about people who are trending. Uh, We have a couple Uh, people in our church who are are more popular, more trending. We have a couple professional athletes that will come to our church from time to time, Uh, people who are very successful business people. And if you've been around people who are trending or people who are popular, there's a certain buzz around those people when you get close to them. Now, the closest I've ever been to that sort of status was probably a couple years ago now, um, a... uh, a representative from the college that I graduated uh, sent me an email, and um, they asked me if I would be willing to do an interview uh, for the college 's alumni magazine and i have to admit, my first reaction when they when they emailed me was like, "Why would they ask me to do that i, I don 't feel like i 've done anything that extraordinary in my life i don 't feel like if uh, there's anything that special to highlight, uh, but it, it was an honor for sure. And so I wrote back, yeah, I, you know, I'd be happy to do that. Um, sounds great. So I got home and I told my wife, she's like, why would they wanna interview you? <laughs> I said, I don't know, uh, but honey, it's an honor, right? So we emailed back and forth. We got a time on the calendar for, for me to do this interview with my, my college for the magazine. And, uh, and so I got into to work a little bit early one day. We had set it up for the morning. And, uh, you know, I was leaving the house. I told Naughty, hey, you know, don't forget I got my uh, alumni magazine interview today. So I got to get out a little early, you know. So I I get to church and uh, I'm in my office and my phone rings and um, I'm chit-chatting with the girl on the phone, you know, what year you graduate, what are you up to now? Cool, sounds good. And she said, hey, well, why don't we go ahead and start the interview? I said, that sounds great. So her first question, she says, "Um, have you always known you wanted to be a children's author? Uh, The problem with that question is not only have I always known not known that I want to be a children's author. I've never been a children's author, right? So I told her, you know, I think you have the wrong person. I think you're looking for my brother Jason Adams, who is a children's author, right? I said, if you'd like to know uh, about what it's like to be a pastor, I could talk to you a little bit about that. Hello, right? And that was the end of that. That was as close as I ever got to that status of trending, of being popular. We're going to jump into a text we're calling Foxes Have Holes today. It's Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. And when we get to this passage of scripture where we drop down in Jesus' life in this moment in the gospel stories, Jesus is trending. Jesus' popularity is on the rise. And there's a lot of textual evidence for that. If we look back just in chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Luke, look at some of these texts that come just in the context of the text we'll be looking at. The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him, Luke 8.40. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, Luke 8.42. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And then lastly, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Jesus is at a place in his ministry where his popularity is trending. It's higher than it's ever been before. I counted in Luke chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9. 14 times crowd or great crowd is mentioned. There's a lot of people who are flocking to Jesus. And it's really no mystery when you look at some of the stories that we get in these chapters, why Jesus was growing in popularity so much. In fact, Luke 8 and 9 are sort of like a highlight reel for Jesus's ministry. Look at some of the the stories that we get in these chapters, Jesus calms a storm, he casts out demons, Jesus heals a woman and raises a girl from the dead, he feeds the 5000 at the beginning of chapter 9. So why in the world would a crowd be interested in this guy? Right? Why would a crowd be interested in somebody who has control over nature and control over the demonic realm? Somebody who can heal you when you're sick or raise you when you're dead or feed you when you're hungry? Why would a crowd be interested in him? The crowds were pressing in on Jesus because Jesus had a lot to offer them. There's more people interested in Jesus than ever before. Jesus was trending. The crowds were growing. Now, if you were, um, if you were running public relations for Jesus, uh, this would be a really big moment to capitalize on in his life. Uh, if, you are his, if you were his PR manager, you'd say, hey, Jesus we got to capitalize on this moment. We have a lot of people who are interested in you. They know who you are. They're they're eager for more of what you have, more of your content, more of what you provide. And so let's capitalize on this moment. Let's leverage our success and our popularity and really take this moment to drive into the future. But what does Jesus do in the text that we're going to look at today? Jesus, in conversations that he has almost tries to talk people out of following him. There's crowds pressing in. People are more interested than ever in Jesus. And right in this moment, we find Jesus almost trying to talk people out of being his follower. As we open up Luke chapter nine in a moment, we're gonna get to listen in to three conversations that Jesus has with people who are interested in being his followers. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or are interested in being a follower of Jesus, I think what we're gonna see in this text is really gonna push on the boundaries of our ideas of what it means to be a follower. Would you pray with me as we dive into this text together? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life that it gives us, the hope that it gives us, the peace that it gives us, and then what we're gonna find this morning, the challenge that it gives us. Lord, your, your word doesn't let us off the hook in this life. There's some accountability for us. And uh, Lord, today you're gonna set a bar and I just pray for grace as we understand what that means and try to live it out in our own lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 9, 51 says this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 is a pivot point in the book of Luke. Uh, There's a lot of things that happened before Luke chapter 9, verse 51. We get the infancy narrative, right? The one we read at Christmas time a lot of times. We read about Jesus' baptism, his temptation in the wilderness. He starts to teach, he starts to perform miracles. And there's a lot of activity and a lot of information that we get about who Jesus is in the first nine chapters of the book of Luke. But when we get to chapter 9, verse 51, Luke intentionally uses language to let us know we are now pivoting from the first part of Jesus' ministry, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And so, as our text picks up in a few verses, we find ourselves at the early stages of this journey that Jesus is on, on his way to Jerusalem, with some of the people who were interested in him following along with him. And that's where we get our first conversation in verse 57. It says this, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, at first blush, uh, that seems like a very impressive statement. This man comes out of the woodwork, uh, unsolicited, and makes a very big claim to Christ. Not only uh, words that we know Jesus likes, I will follow you, uh, but he adds a qualifier, I'll follow you wherever you go wherever you go. This is a man who can really talk the right kind of words. Now, we might expect Jesus in this circumstance to uh, look at this man, uh, maybe actually to draw attention to this man, put his arm around him. Hey guys, everybody stop walking for a minute. This man just told me he'll follow me wherever I go. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's what I'm looking for. That's not what Jesus does, is it? Look at verse 58. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus doesn't applaud this man for that statement of commitment. In fact, Jesus gives this man a reality check. Even forest creatures have it better than I do, Jesus tells them. Now, commentators uh, will often point out as they talk about this verse, verse 58, uh, that what Jesus is, is doing here is he wants to make sure that those who might be interested in following him recognize that some of the comforts that we're used to as people might have to be abandoned as we follow Christ. And that's certainly true, but we're one step above comforts here, right? What Jesus is telling this man is that even some of your basic needs will go unmet when you're a follower of me. When you follow Christ, Jesus wants you to know Sometimes that could lead to poverty. Sometimes that could lead to homelessness. To be a follower of Christ, especially at this time, was a real commitment. So, in Jesus' first conversation here, what he's doing is setting a bar for those who really want to be his followers. He lets them know following me will require self sacrifice. Following me will require self-sacrifice. Now, if you were reading through uh, Luke chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9, the idea that there's opposition to Jesus wouldn't sneak up on you in this verse. Uh, In fact, we could could easily track the popularity of Jesus trending up, which we did a moment ago, uh, but you could just as easily track the opposition of Jesus that's also rising at the same time. In fact, uh, at the beginning of Luke 9, we find John the Baptist beheaded. And then about halfway through the chapter, the Son of Man, Jesus says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then one more time, very explicitly, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. These are the kinds of things Jesus was already saying to those who were interested in him. And in fact, in the the couple verses right before our text, they go to Samaria and they're rejected there. And then Jesus huddles around with the 72 that he chooses and he gives them instructions on how he wants them to proceed. And a lot of the instructions are, how are you going to deal with rejection? And then just a couple chapters later, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem interacts with some people who, Say things about Jesus that'll make your blood boil. They tell Jesus that he gets his power from the devil. And then we know what happens in Jerusalem with the passion and the trials and the execution and the torture. Jesus wants his followers to know there's gonna be opposition. There is opposition. It's gonna require self-sacrifice to be my follower. The crowds are around, Jesus is trending, everybody's excited about what Jesus can do and what he can provide. And Jesus wants the people to make sure they know what they're getting into. So what's Jesus saying in this first conversation? It's one thing to say, you'll follow me anywhere. I want you to count the cost. I want you to count the cost. Jesus is trying to draw this man out. Is there any hesitation in you for following me? And as people who may be interested in following Jesus today, or maybe people who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus today, we've got the same kind of question to answer Will I really follow Jesus anywhere? Now, maybe you're, uh, you're close to being able to say that. But for a lot of us, if we think about it, there are some places where we would be able to fill in this blank. I'll follow Jesus except for. Is there a place in your life that you won't follow Jesus and you know it? If you spend any time on uh, on Christian social media, uh, you know that we love to post glowing statements about our commitment to Christ. Uh, We love to to say the kinds of things that we know to be true. Uh, Sometimes social media can be aspirational for us. I'm gonna type something out that I really want to be true of myself or we can type something out in our best moments. And if you spend any time on Christian social media, you'll see statements like this all the time. I'll follow Jesus, I'll follow Jesus, I'll follow Jesus. But social media often will present the best version of ourselves, right? What if the world got the honest version of ourselves? For some of us, it'd be this, I'll follow Jesus except at school. No one there even knows I'm a Christian. Or I'll follow Jesus except in my business. If I ran my business like Jesus, I'd be out of business. Or I'll follow Jesus except on the field. When I'm competing, the last thing I'm thinking about is my testimony. Are there places that we won't follow Jesus and we know it? Jesus is asking a question in this first conversation. Are you ready to follow wherever? Are you ready to follow anywhere? Second conversation. We pick it up in verse 59. Jesus gets into a conversation with not the same man, a different man. So we read this in verse 59. To another, he said, this is Jesus talking, follow me. So in this conversation, Jesus actually initiates the conversation. And then we read this in verse 59. But he said, this second man, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now we don't get all the details in this story, uh, but there are a few possibilities what could be going on here. So uh, one possibility would be that this man has has uh, recently heard that his father has passed away, and uh, and he has to get back home and 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 take care of his father's burial and uh, you know end of life duties that sort of thing. Uh, another possibility uh, could be that the man hasn't quite died yet, but maybe his health is failing or he's very old, and you know people anticipate you know his his end is coming soon, and the son knows that before I make any long-term commitments, uh, I got to make sure that, that, you know, I'm there for the needs of the family. Now, not everything in the ancient world translates well to the 21st century. If you read the Bible, you know that. But this is one circumstance that does translate pretty well into our modern culture. Uh, this statement would be reasonable to make. Uh, and 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 in the Old Testament, there were certain responsibilities that people had for the process of burial that were a lot more extensive than what most of us have today. Uh, in fact, sons would have special roles in the burial of their father. We see this even in the story of Joseph back in Egypt. Uh, we know from a Leviticus twenty one that priests typically weren't allowed to touch dead bodies, but they made one exception, and that's when it was your mother or your father. Sons had a special role in the burial process. And so what this man is talking about is actually a responsibility or a duty. Not to mention the fact that this man most likely would have had some of the affairs of the household to sort out. You had communal families oftentimes living in one house. There would need to be division of assets, care for dependents, inheritance situations to sort out. A lot of work to do, a lot of responsibility. In fact, for this man to blow off that responsibility would have been scandalous in his culture. And so once again, maybe we expect Jesus to be understanding about what this man has on his plate. Excuse me. Maybe we expect Jesus to even commend this man for taking his responsibility and his duty so seriously. But look what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now we have a tendency sometimes when we read the Bible to declaw scripture a little bit. Don't do that in this passage. If this sounds brash to you, it's because it is brash. Not only does Jesus reject this man's question. But then he gives this sort of cryptic response, let the dead bury their dead. So what Jesus is doing here is a little play on words that Jesus does quite a bit in his teaching. He's spiritualizing the ideas of life and death. So when he tells the the parable of the prodigal son and the father receives the son at the end of that story, uh, if you remember the way Jesus describes that as he's telling the story is the father says, my son was dead and now he's alive again. Now, we know there wasn't a real death in that parable. Jesus was using life and death in spiritual terms, and that's what he's doing here. When he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, he's saying, leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. You're talking about responsibilities and duties, and I get that, but there's plenty of people Who have nothing going on spiritually who can do those kinds of things? I want your focus to be on proclaiming the kingdom of God. So, what do we learn about Jesus in this little exchange? Is he anti family, anti responsibility, throw off all work responsibilities, being a good husband, being a good son? Is that what Jesus is saying? Jesus is making a point in this conversation that when you sign up to be his follower, you get a complete upheaval of your responsibilities and priorities. Now, if you're wondering um, if Jesus' reaction was a little over the top, I think there was a word in this man's statement that set Jesus off, and it was the word first. Let me first Go and bury my father. When you follow Jesus, you're no longer in charge of your agenda. So, Jesus' point in the second conversation following me will reorder your priorities. Following me will reorder your priorities. Now, the tricky thing about this is that the enemy of following Jesus in this conversation is actually responsibilities, sometimes good things. Sometimes responsibilities, duties, priorities, even good things can get in the way of what Jesus might be calling us to do. I've, uh, I've mentioned I don't, a lot of times over the years Uh, Grew up in a pastor's home. And um, when when we went to to Toronto to plant a church, I was five years old. And um, when we went up there, uh, we had, I believe, two churches that were supporting us financially. One was up in Canada and one was down in New Jersey in a little town called Rosedale. And and so when we would come back uh, through this general area, we have some family in the area when I was growing up. Uh, my family would come down in the summer, we'd often drive over to Rosedale, New Jersey, and my dad would preach at this church that was one of our supporting churches. And that's uh, pretty common, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, missionaries would come through and, you know, if they were supported by the church, they would share a little bit about their ministry and, and usually take a Sunday morning, that sort of thing. So one particular Sunday morning that we were in Rosedale, New Jersey, um, I remember my dad preaching a message on this text Now, I sat under my dad's preaching for 20 years. I might be able to remember a few messages, <laughs> not a ton, uh, But this one I remember. He was preaching on these three conversations. He was preaching about this, specifically this idea of letting the dead bury their dead, and I wasn't quite getting that as a kid. But about halfway through his message, and when he was talking about this, there was a middle-aged guy who just was losing it emotionally in the pews. And there's only about 50 people in the church, so it was pretty obvious. And uh, at the end of the service, um, the man went down to the front where the steps are up to the stage and got on his face and was just weeping at the front of the church. And um, this was a church that we had attended when I was, you know, real young. And I, you know, vaguely knew some of the people there. I know who this man was. I know his name still. He was at the front of the church just weeping. And uh, my dad went down. I remember my dad putting his arm on this guy's back and just down next to him, talking to him. And uh, we got around the church and said goodbye to a few people. We were out in the car. I mean, it was probably half an hour my dad was in, in the auditorium talking to this guy. And when my dad came out to the car, uh, us kids were like, Dad, what, what was that about? Is that guy okay? And my dad told us that the man was saying to my dad, I've been burying the dead. I've been spiritually dead and I'm burying the dead. I'm so focused on my responsibilities, on my duties. Now, this was a good guy. He was a a, a fireman. That was his job. Good family, couple kids, took them everywhere they needed to go, practices, schools. Showed up to work when he needed to kept his yard clean. I mean, this guy's doing everything you're supposed to do as a man. And yet, God was speaking to him through this text that his priorities, although they weren't bad things, weren't necessarily what Jesus would want in his life. And all of his focus and all of his attention were on the things that a spiritually dead person could do. What Jesus calls his followers here too, is a new set of priorities, a new set of responsibilities. And oftentimes the enemy of that are even good things. So Jesus's response to this man raises yet another question for us. Have I elevated any responsibility over following Jesus? Have you done that? Maybe you can fill in the blank. I will follow Jesus as soon as I what? Is there something in your life, even a good thing, that you placed importance above following Jesus? Again, on social media, it can be really easy to write these four words, right? I will follow Jesus. What's the real story for many of us? I'll follow Jesus as soon as I get to college. I've got a reputation I just can't change right now. Or I'll follow Jesus as soon as I get married. I'll definitely follow Jesus more when I get a family. Or I'll follow Jesus as soon as the kids move out. I'm just trying to make it to the end of the day right now. As people interested in Jesus... We can so often stack up things in front of him in line. What Jesus is challenging us here is to get rid of that as soon as and ask us this question Are you ready to follow now? Are you ready to follow now? So, are you ready to follow wherever? Are you ready to follow now? third conversation Jesus has, beginning in verse 51. Yet another said, so here's a third man coming along. I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now what this man asks for is to say the word he uses is like a formal farewell. I just want to say goodbye to my family. Now, I'm not sure if he didn't overhear the last conversation Jesus had with the guy before him or um, maybe he thought that guy's asking for days or maybe months or a little longer than that. I'm asking for hours. Surely Jesus can grant this. What does Jesus say in verse 62? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you're uh, in that little pack of people that's traveling down to Jerusalem with Jesus, and you're listening in on this, right? Uh, I get the foxes have holes thing. There's a lot of opposition against you right now, Jesus. If you want to make sure we're committed to whatever that means, that makes sense. And I even get the burial thing because you've got a pretty tight schedule. You've got a lot going on. There's a lot uh, you're asking us to do and leaving for a few days or a month or even longer. Yeah, I could see how you would not be okay with that. But not letting a guy go say goodbye to his family, seriously, seriously. There's a great sort of parallel Bible story way back in the book of First Kings. Uh, it's like sort of a cryptic story, I guess. Um, some of you might be familiar with it. It's when Elijah calls Elisha into ministry as a prophet. And uh, in that story, um, the call of Elisha, there's a couple things that parallel what happens in our story in the book of Luke. Listen to what we read in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. This is talking about Elijah. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. So the story picks up with Elijah traveling to the farm where Elisha was working. And not just working, Elisha evidently, is a man of great wealth. He's got 12 teams of oxen, which is quite a big deal back then. He's at the back running the farming business. Elisha is there farming, and verse 20 says this, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Sees Elijah, runs after him. Elijah uh, passes by him and casts his cloak on him. So the idea of this story is that Elijah, the older prophet, finds this younger guy, Elisha, that he wants to make the, the new prophet in, in Israel. And so he, he puts his prophetic cloak on Elisha as a symbol of saying, you're now gonna be a prophet. And what's Elisha's response to that? Second half of verse 20, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Now, uh, knowing what you know from from. What we just read in Luke, how do you think Elijah is going to respond? How dare you ask that? You know, you can't do that. We got work to do, right? It's not what Elijah says. Listen to what Elijah says. He said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he, Elisha, returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them boiled their flesh with the yolks of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he rose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So Elisha in the story asks if he could say goodbye to his family. Elijah says, sure. Elisha goes back to his farm. Did you hear what I said? He boils all of those farm animals that were used to do the farm work. And he makes a big barbecue for everybody in the town. They can come over and eat. And what he does in that moment is basically walk away from his family business. I'm burning it. I'm never coming back. When I go to become a prophet, that's what I'm gonna do. So it's a, it's a statement in 1 Kings 19 of extreme commitment. And what Jesus tells us in Luke 9 is the extreme commitment that you might be used to I'm going to ratchet that up even further. To be a follower of me, you can't even say goodbye to your family. I'm not even going to give you the sort of reasonable, expected courtesy that Elijah gave Elisha. What the man asks is absolutely reasonable. But what Jesus is saying is that following me will remove your rights. Following me will remove your rights. What Jesus demands is utter devotion and commitment. If you want to follow Jesus, what Jesus is saying is you can't have anything else on the table. When I was growing up in my house, we had... um, some little paperback missionary books i don't know does that look familiar to anybody in here i think a lot of homes had these uh in the 80s and uh there was books on a lot of different famous missionaries throughout the 18th, 19th century and, and maybe a little bit before that they're like biographies kind of short uh designed for kids to read and so uh we would read these growing up if i had a book report or something like that to do at school George Mueller, his book was a guy who dared to trust God for the needs of countless orphans. Maybe you know this man's story, very famous for starting these Christian orphanages. But listen to the words that he says here. There was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller and his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame, even of my brothers or friends. And since then... I have studied only to show myself approved to God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what George Mueller says as well. My grandmother had a little phrase uh, she used to say, no ifs, ands, or buts. Do you have any ifs, ands, or buts when it comes to following Jesus? I will follow Jesus, but any reservation, any hesitation at all, any place that you're not ready to follow? Once again, we can see these words, I will follow Jesus, I will follow Jesus, I will follow Jesus. We can say it, so easy to say, but not when I'm with my girlfriend. I'm willing to give him everything else. I'll follow Jesus, but not with my finances. He can have everything extra. I'll follow Jesus, but not with my fear. There will always be things in the future that I'll need to worry about. Are you ready to follow Jesus completely? So, three conversations that Jesus has with three different men on his trip to Jerusalem. He tells them three different things. First, following me will require self sacrifice. Are you ready to follow wherever? Second, following me will reorder your priorities. Are you ready to follow now? And third, following me will remove your rights. Are you ready to follow completely? Now that's quite a pitch that Jesus gives to followers, isn't it? These are hard words of Jesus. And uh, if I know the way the devil likes to work, he would love, he would love To use this passage to bring shame and condemnation on the children of God, you say you're a follower of Jesus. This proves you're not. Is that what Jesus is trying to do in this passage? Let me give you a little heads up. As a follower of Jesus, you won't do these things perfectly. What Jesus is saying in this passage, what he's doing in this passage, is setting a bar. I, I got home from f- thinking about this message a little bit. I was here Thursday night, and um, sometimes while I'm working on a, a message I'll be in the heat of things, uh, typing down some thoughts and things like that, and then I'll walk away from it, and um, and the Lord will bring something to my mind that, that you know, just helps me get some clarity on what I'm trying to say. And I was laying down late at night on Thursday night, and I thought, you know, what's this passage saying? This this passage could be misunderstood. It could drive people who sincerely want to follow Christ to despair. That's not what I want, and it's not what Jesus wanted what's this passage doing? What's this passage saying? I think what Jesus is communicating to those who are interested in following him is a simple choice. Do you want to be in charge of your own life or do you want to follow me? Do you want to run your own life? Do you want to set your own priorities? or do you want to follow me? Do you want to limit the areas that I can lead, draw some dotted lines around some things that I'm not allowed to to walk you into, or do you want to follow me? Jesus is looking at everyone who's interested in following him and asking that question. Do you want to be in charge, or do you want to follow me? For those who want to follow him, we get great promises. Maybe one of my favorites in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the beauty of the New Testament is we do get a few examples as the pages of the New Testament go on of people who follow Jesus. We get to see some of those lives worked out in in dimension as the New Testament unfolds. We see it in, in the life of some of the apostles. We see it in the life of Paul, Silas, Timothy, Stephen. And we also see it in our own life, when we meet someone who is a completely committed follower of Christ. Not perfect, but they've made that decision. I don't want to run my own life. I want to follow Jesus. I want to close with uh, one more story of a man who made a commitment like that. It's a man named William Borden. Uh, He was born in the late 1800s, and he was the heir of a family fortune, a dairy company that is worth billions today. He could be described as an Ivy League graduate. He did his undergraduate work at Yale and he earned a graduate degree from Princeton, but William Borden decided to be known as a follower of Christ. After he graduated from high school, his parents sent him on a tour around the world. As he traveled across Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, God began to call him to reach out to the lost people who had never heard the good news of the gospel. He wrote home to tell his parents that he was giving his life to Jesus on the mission field. On that trip, he wrote two words in his Bible, no reserves. He knew that following Jesus in this way would require a complete commitment. William's father insisted that he attend the university, so he enrolled at Yale. His freshman year, he found his passion for Christ was not shared by many, so he began meeting with a friend in the morning to read the Bible and pray together. Before long, other students joined them, and it became a revival on that campus as students met in different groups for Bible study and prayer. By the time William was a senior, a thousand of the students were a part of one of these groups. One entry he recorded in his personal journal during that time simply said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. During his time at Yale, Borden also worked with the homeless and the hurting who were living on the streets of New Haven. He founded and personally funded the Yale Hope Mission in an effort to rehabilitate alcoholics and addicts. His father died while he was at Yale, leaving William with a significant family fortune. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden wrote two more words in the back of his Bible, no retreats. He knew that following Jesus meant he couldn't look back. He knew Jesus was calling him to world missions and decided to take the gospel to the Kansu people in China. Before going to China, he went to Egypt where he could learn Arabic and prepare for his ministry to Muslims. While he was in Egypt, he caught spinal meningitis. William Borden died one month later at the age of 25. He was buried in Cairo. There are some who might say that he didn't make a good trade. He gave up his family, his fortune, and a future career to follow Jesus. As a missionary, he died before he reached the mission field. But this man, who sparked revival at Yale, ministered to hundreds through his mission, and has inspired thousands of missionaries with his commitment, knew he had made the right decision. After his death, there were three phrases found written inside the Bible of his completely committed follower of Jesus. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. The simple question I want you to think about as we close today. Do you wanna be in charge of your own life or do you wanna follow Jesus? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge, uh, the, the bite that your word has. And Lord, I thank you for your abundant grace for your patience with your children. Lord, you know as, as much as any of us, more than any of us, how often we fail, how we can let you down, how even despite our best intentions, we fall short of being completely committed followers of you quite often. And Lord, we're grateful that because of the righteousness we have from you, you don't condemn us. And yet, Lord, we also wanna respond to these calls that you make on our life. And so, God, we ask you for your help. We ask you for your grace. And we thank you again for your patience with your children. Uh, Lord, if anyone in here this morning has been someone interested in you, may they see from these words of scripture what being a follower entails. Would you call them, Lord, in your grace? to be your follower and use their life and their story as you did with William Borden, as you did with George Mueller, as you did with many of Jesus's followers that we read about in scripture. We ask all this in Jesus name, amen.